You are listening to The Players' Lounge with your host, Alex Ramirez, on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. Good evening, everyone. Welcome to the Players' Lounge, presented by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Today is Tuesday, May 27th. I am your host, Alex Ramirez. Running shotgun with me today is ATP WTA journalist and writer of his blog, Tennis Acumen, Pete Zebron. Pete, how are you doing tonight? Doing well, Alex. Uh, wonderful to be back on the show. Thank you. Yes, yes. Thanks for being here. And joining us, I want to remind everybody that you can call the show at area code 347-637-1197 if you have questions for our guests. You can also reach us on Twitter at Pro10Radio and check Pro10Radio.com for all the podcasts and future show information. Just a quick reminder that we started a campaign to support the orphans at the Elora Academy in Africa that serve the less fortunate children across the slums of Kisungu City and Western Kenya. Please check Pro10Radio.com website and click on the Donate button. We have a great show for you today. We have two guests. Our first guest uh, was one of the first top-ranked players who were developed by the famed Nick Volateri Tennis Academy. He was an All-American at the University of Arkansas in 1986, was ranked among the top five Division I singles players in the U.S., a member of the 1986 U.S. Junior Davis Cup college team, and participated in Russia as a member of the American team in the U.S. Good World Games. He founded the U.S. Rookie Professional Tennis Team in 1988. In 1990, he was hired to serve as the head coach for the Beijing Kings World Team Tennis Franchise, Wellington Aces, in 1990 and 91. In 1992, he was hired as a head coach and general manager of the World Team Tennis Franchise, Tampa Bay Action. He's the author of the book, Hiding Inside the Baseline. Bobby Blair, welcome to the show. Thanks for being with us. Well, Alex, thanks for having me. It's uh, very exciting, and it's a great way to get our summer started. So thanks uh, thanks for having me. And, Pete, uh, how are you tonight? I'm doing good. Can you still hear me okay? Bobby, can you hear me okay? Yep, I can hear you. All right. I, don't, I think we lost Pete. I hope he can call back and get on the show. Uh, anyway, we want to get started right now. I'll be just kind of getting to you. Can you tell us how... When you started tennis, how did you get started in the sport of tennis? Who introduced you? How did it all start for you? Well, I was born, you know, October 24th, 1964, and, you know, I was born in a hotbed of tennis in Fort Lauderdale, Florida, and uh, my mom played semi-pro basketball, kind of like the equivalent to to a level just below the WNBA in the 1950s, and she was also a semi-pro tennis player, and she, she had a great game, and uh, we moved to Orlando when I was young, and I, you know, one summer when I was about nine years old, and after playing, you know, many, many, you know, months with my mom in the public parks, to be exact, you know, you know, I'd go down there and she'd hit around with me, and she was so good. It was just amazing. You know, when your mom does something really cool, it's like you think you have the coolest mom in the whole world. Right. And you know, she helped me for about six months, and then finally summer came around, and uh, she took me down to the Orlando Tennis Center which is really, you know, an incredible historical place. Bill Tilden played there and Bill Talbert and 
all the great players from the 40s, 50s, you know, Fred Stolle and all the really great players, Labor played there. And so I, I grew up there and went into a tennis clinic one summer that was being run by Jim Kelleher, who was the tennis pro there. And, you know, I just loved it so much. And, you know, my mom from the very beginning, you know, you know, I came from pretty humble beginnings. My dad was a painter by trade. We never had any extra money whatsoever. And my mom always kind of said, even when I was 8, 9, 10, you know, tennis could be really special for you and it might be a way for you to really do something great in life and may give you opportunities that we might not be able to provide you that would, you know, have financial costs, you know, associated with it. So Jim Kelleher was my first coach, and uh, he took me uh, until I was about 13. He ended up going to law school. I think I may have stayed with him forever. And uh, he wrote me an incredibly poignant letter um, early on, which we talk about in the book, how when I started to get pretty good, I started getting a little cocky and a little bit out of line. He wrote me this incredible letter that we actually published in the book, Barry and I, and, uh, you, know, and you know, and then I ended up going to the Orlando Racquet Club and had a couple really great coaches, Betty Pratt. She was a Wimbledon semifinalist in the 40s. She played Maureen Connolly, and it was amazing. She kind of taught me. You would think that Betty would have taught me how to serve in volley and how to be really good around the net, but she really was teaching me how to beat players that would come to the net. And so she helped me with my angle passing shots and topspin lobs and strategy and you know, and then one day I, you know, I had the break of a lifetime. You know, Nick Voluntary offered me a full scholarship. At that time, my mom was real sick with cancer, and my dad was not doing well at all. And a blessing from God came. And, you know, I wasn't that great a player, maybe number 10 in the state of Florida. And uh, right. a full scholarship to the NBTA, you know, I talk about it, $10 in my pocket, two pairs of shoes from Kmart, and two rackets, one not strong. And Nick said, hey, you're with me. And, um few years later, I left there, uh, one of the top juniors in the United States, a runner-up in the U.S. National Boys Clay Courts, uh, just barely lost to Aaron Kickstein for the number one U.S. ranking in junior tennis, and the rest is history, you know, and I knew all along, though, that I was a little different, you know, I know we'll talk about that tonight, it was a struggle, but that's how I got my start and kind of ended up on the world stage in tennis, and, um, you know, thanks to all the people in Orlando, and certainly thanks to Nick Bollettieri. Uh, you and I wouldn't be on the phone tonight. Absolutely, yeah. And, you know, uh, you brought up a good point because, uh, you know, I coach, and um, you said you, you knew you were a little different at the very beginning. Can you talk a little bit about at what age did you kind of start figuring out, like, hey, I'm not the same as everybody else, and when do I start letting people know about this? Because I'm sure it's got to be very difficult as a young boy you know something's different. You just don't know how to really express yourself. And then how are people going to take you, you know, how when you tell them? Well, you know, I, I, I think it's important for the audience to know what we're talking about is that I was gay. And yes. I just had, I just absolutely, you know, was brought up. My, my uncle was the athletic director at Notre Dame, Dick Rosenthal. And my grandmother was the biggest Notre Dame football plant on the planet. My mom did all the ironing for the Catholic church. I was an altar boy and, so anytime, you know, those types of subjects came up in my household or with my family or vacations or Thanksgivings, you know, anytime there would be a person on TV, you know, if Harvey Milk was on TV at the time when I was 10 or 11 or anything like that was going on, you know, I got this really weird, you know, feeling that maybe I feel like they feel because I just felt like I never really had that attraction towards girls, although 
I enjoyed hanging out and going on dates and having a lot of fun, but I never felt like that emotional attachment. And I also knew that, it, you know, in those days I was being brought up, it was wrong, it was sinful, and in a lot of ways it was considered a mental sickness, that you were just mentally sick. And so that was I was dealing with a lot of concerns that, well, maybe I just, you know, I was a late bloomer, you know, I reached puberty late, I wasn't a big, tall, strong kid, I was a, you know, a little guy. And so, so I, you know, maybe it's just that, you know, I haven't reached that point like some of my other friends. But by the time I was 13, 14, I kind of knew something was different because they were all chasing girls. I was doing it just to look cool. I think they were doing it because they were actually turned on. I was just doing it because I thought it was the cool thing. So I kind of knew right away that I was different. But, you know, I was blessed in a way that, you know, one, I didn't look like it, kind of, I didn't talk like it. Um, I was the, one of the most popular kids. You know, I was blessed with, you know, I was a decent-looking kid, you know, and so I wasn't a feminine. I was so – I say I was lucky or maybe it was the biggest curse because maybe if I was, I would have come out early and it would have been known and, you know, I wouldn't have had all the terrible struggles and turmoils and the exhaustion that I went through covering it up because maybe I just would have been outed and everyone said, well, Bobby, hey, we know you are. But I was one that nobody knew. And even just this past year, people have called Bobby and said, I just can't believe it for a second. Just tell me it's not true. Not that they cared, but they didn't believe it. They just couldn't believe it. So, But I knew 13, 14 that I was different. And I, the thing was, though, it wasn't like I was interested in my friends. I just felt a connection with them, meaning I thought it was cool to hang out and watch TV and go to movies. And I loved playing tennis with my friends. and you know, going to the pool and going to the park. And uh, so I just found that to be very, very, you know, you know, important to me. And, you know, a lot of my friends I felt somewhat like of an emotional attachment to. It's like, go to a tournament on 14, the tournament's over on Sunday, everybody's ready to get home. Like, I've almost got, like, tears in my eyes because I wish the tournament wasn't over because I was having so much fun at the tournament. And I was having so much fun hanging out with my friends. I don't know if that was gay or just, I knew I was more emotional than my friends. Right. Thank you for sharing that. Thank you so much. Hi, Bobby. Back on the line. My call dropped. Sorry about that. And uh, thanks for elaborating on that. And, you know, growing up, you were one of the elite junior players here in the U.S. I was wondering, was it your goal at that point in time to be a world-class player and go pro? It was. I mean, you know, I grew up in, you know, pretty tough beginnings. I mean, you know, my dad, you know, God bless him, he was, you know, he tried in so many ways to be a good dad, but quite frankly, you know, he failed in so many departments. I mean, we moved all the time, and he could never keep a consistent painting job, and, you know, we were moving from place to place. And my mom was such a good Catholic, you know, when you're married, you stay married, you don't get divorced. And, you know, and then my mom got diagnosed with cancer when I was 14, and we talk about in the book those four years of incredible incredible sorrow, just watching her wither away, and then there was a huge moment in Louisville that Barry wrote, so touching and so incredibly. I mean, I don't know anyone that hasn't just broken down and cried when they read that chapter, and, you know, because Barry brought it to life, and, you know, so, you know, those four or five years, it's just, I knew that tennis was going to be my my exit strategy to a life that my parents were never going to be able to provide me so I mean I worked so incredibly hard I think that's what Nick really loved about me is I worked so hard 
that the kids that were there that came from, you know, better financial resources and maybe didn't have to be good tennis players to have a successful life, Nick wanted me around those kids to show them the work ethic and to show them the passion to do something great. And I bought into that, and I wanted that, and I knew that it was going to give me a life that I could only dream of. And thank God for Nick Volatari, and thank God for people like Billie Jean King later on in my career, and you know, for Tom Pucci, who brought me to Arkansas, and Ron Hightower, who helped me, and teammates like Tim Siegel. And, you know, these people were big, big people in my life that you know, really helped me along. So, yes, I knew right along, early on, I mean, guys, I'm serious, 11, 12 years old, I knew that tennis was going to be the only thing that was going to give me a decent life. Alex, I think uh, I think we may have lost Alex there. Yep, I'm here, Pete. Okay. Uh, no, Alex, I, you're on, Bobby. I don't think we have Alex on. And, um, you know, uh, Bobby, I'm wondering if you can uh, talk a little bit. You, you mentioned uh, how much Nick meant to you, but how, how and why did you choose Nick to write the foreword for your book? Well, you know, I'll never forget, you know, Labor Day. It was literally Labor Day, Monday, 1980. And, you know, we showed up in our old beat-up car, and, you know, I was so embarrassed. You thought that by then I was just turned 15. Well, I was getting ready to turn 15. You would have thought by then I would have gotten used to showing up at the tournaments with the worst car of any kid playing junior tennis in Florida, and you would have thought that all that would have been, you know, kind of behind me. But, you know, we pulled up there and, you know, you know, emptied out the car with two rackets, like I said, and no money, 10 bucks. And Nick just immediately embraced me. Welcome, welcome. You know, you're going to be my son. I'm going to, you're going to become a great player. And he had known me for, you know, three minutes, and he was giving me a high five and loving me. And then Carolina Murphy and Julio Morris and Steve Owens and Greg Brunick and Gabriel, you know, they all just embraced me. And, you know, right then and there, I just knew that I'd found my home. And um, I'll never, ever... Uh, be more indebted to another human being as Nick Volatari. So he he recognized uh, my work ethic. He recognized my tenacity. He probably saw my lack of talent. You know, as as hard as I worked, I should have been a lot better than I was. So it means I just didn't quite have the goods to winning U.S. Open. But you know, I think Nick believes that winning the U.S. Open in life is more important than U.S. Opens. I think he would say that at 82 years old. So, you know, Nick knew me better than anybody. He took me from scratch. He gave me a career. Um, and we've been great friends for now 30-something years, I guess 34 years now. And there was nobody else in the world I would have had written it but Nick. That is great. That is great. It's nice to have that influence in your life and for that long of a period of time that, uh, that really, you know, molded you to who you are today. That was really good to hear. Um, Bobby, you started off in, in the – can you talk a little bit about the challenges you faced in trying to make it in the pro circuit when you first started? Well, the first thing was is the biggest challenge was, as I always felt was, is hiding, you know, literally my sexuality, hiding the small crushes that I would have on certain friends. And I know that some people might laugh about that, but, you know, it's what I dealt with, and it was – really strange because nobody would have ever thought that was happening to me, but it was. And the emotional distraughtness of not being able to be with someone that you want to be with and to really not 
feel like you're living an authentic life. Uh, so I dealt with that challenge first, and that never allowed me to feel superior to another player because I always felt like, you know, that they were not dealing with this. They had it so much easier than I did. It was so easy for them to have a girlfriend, and they, had, they weren't hiding something so traumatic. So I felt like that was, you know, getting down 4-0 and two breaks in the first set in many ways. And I'm not trying to make any excuses for not, you know, winning a U.S. Open or even being a top-10 player in the world, but that was really an overwhelming stress for me. And and so then you put on top of the fact that I grew up in Florida on the slow clay courts. You know, we had red clay at the Orlando Tennis Center. We had green clay at the Orlando Racquet Club. I was a heck of a clay court player. I, I think I may have only lost four or five junior matches on clay courts, in, you know, in a five-year period and certainly almost beat Aaron Crickstein in the finals of the boys' 18 clay courts. And so I was a pusher where I could hit some pretty big shots, but it wasn't my comfort level. I was much more interested in the guy missing than me hitting a winner or a great shot. So I had a pretty good serve. I was super, super fast. I, you know, I, I wouldn't make hardly any unforced errors. But, you know, in 1983, even though I was in the top five of the juniors and the 18s, and I was beating guys like Luke Jensen and Robbie Weiss, and, you know, all the best of the best, uh, they were playing a bigger game and they just were a little more erratic and making a few more errors, but they were playing a much bigger game. And then when I got into the pros in the 84, 85, 86, 87 range, playing pro tennis in college and then, after college, the serves got huge. The forehands even got bigger than Crickstein and Arias had. Um, the guys were stronger. They were hitting the ball by me. And uh, and the really good ones were able to rally pretty darn good, too. So the game totally changed. I was a Harold Sullivan. We did our haircut at the same place here in Fort Lauderdale. We lived only a few blocks away from each other. And, you know, I missed that era by probably five years uh, where my style of game could have probably – been on the world stage, but, you know, I, I, I look at it like I was able to have a great career. I was able to travel the world. I met some of the greatest people in the planet, you know, in the world of tennis and sports, and uh, I was able to use those relationships and, and build on those relationships to do some special things after tennis. That is so great. Thank you so much for sharing. We're talking with Bobby Blair, and we're coming up on a break, Bobby, so we'll be right back. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back talking with Bobby Blair. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer sound effects on you? Yes. Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562. 
dollars per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Well, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. And participating locations plus tax. Hi, this is Jeff Saldenstein. Hi, this is Kenda Hart. Hi, this is Dick Gould. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to The Coach's Corner on Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 o'clock Pacific. Welcome back to the Players' Lounge presented today by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. We are talking with author Bobby Blair. And uh, Bobby, now that we're back and we're talking about you authored a book, can you tell us a little bit about uh, about your book and how that came about? Yeah, it, about a year and a half ago, you know, I was, I had a, uh, it was August the 4th, 2012, so we're, we're coming up on almost two years um, a dear friend of mine and, and somebody who I had a, an amazing relationship with, uh, Wesley Kyler, um, who I'd been with and spent a lot of a lot of years with, you know, in the closet and privately with. Um, he passed away, uh, and, and he had a, a pretty serious drug addiction, and he was in San Francisco, and he was just not making it in life. And you know, even though we had not been together for many many years, I you know I still had a cell phone with him in my name, and I would keep paying that cell phone, hoping that one day that, you know, he would call me and tell me that he's really ready to get his life in order and get a fresh start. And I'm talking about this is one of the greatest young people I've ever met. He was an incredible basketball player at Winter Haven High School and he had scholarship offers around the country and was extremely talented on the Internet and he was an incredible graphic designer and just one of the greatest people I'd ever met. And, you know, and he really helped me at certain stages of my life, and he just helped me really feel good about myself when I was really struggling with my sexual orientation. And he passed away of uh, an accidental overdose literally on the streets, 2200 Market Street to be exact, in the Castro District in San Francisco. And I just spoke to him five hours before this happened. He called me and said he really, really wanted to come home and that he would take my help and, you know, his mom and dad were ready for him to come home, and his sister was ready. And, you know, you know, the last thing he said to me, you know, Paul Davis wrote a song called Sweet Life. It's a big popular song in the 70s. And he said and told me that I gave him an amazing sweet life. And uh, he kind of sang the song over the phone. And I said, I'll talk to you tomorrow. I'll buy your ticket. And that night he passed away, and he was found dead on the sidewalk at Market Street. I just said to myself, you know what, I'm partially to blame for this. I know I did everything I could to help him, but you know what I didn't do? 
and Barry, again, brought this to life in the book, is I didn't teach him how to live his truth, how to live his authentic life and address drug addiction. I taught him how to hide and cover and not tell the truth about who you really are and what your issues are, because I live in the closet with him every day since I met him, since the day he was 19 years old. So I felt like, you know what, in his memory, in his name, I've got to tell my story because I can't be out there educating people that it's okay not to live your truth, face your demons, be who God made you to be, step up to the plate, and, you know, try to make a difference. And I also felt like, guys, that, you know, in those days in the 80s, I know it would have been really hard, um, but there were many times where I almost got caught. <laughs> you know, there were many situations where I kind of almost got busted with being gay. And I felt like, God, if I could have come out in the 80s, and here's a you know, top-ranked college player, semifinals with the All-American, you know, beating guys like Rick Leach and, you know, all the top players. And I was a top right. player. I was number four in the United States. If I would have come out, just think of the difference that could have made in sports and college athletics. And I mean, look at the difference that I could have made. So I said, you know what, I don't want to miss the boat again. And so with Wesley passing away, and me being a leader now in LGBT publishing, you know, we have the third or fourth largest entertainment magazine every week in the whole country, and we've got the leading newspaper, top two or three newspaper in the United States. I felt like I needed to be authentic and real and straight up with who I am. And I never, ever wanted to show people that you could look like you're happy and say that you're happy and not living your truth. And I feel like I, I, I really let Wesley down. And so in his memory, I, I wrote this book. That is awesome. And speaking of writing the book, we have a, a special guest with us today, Barry Butts. He wrote the book with you. And I want to bring oh, wow. you on the show right now. Barry, are you there? I am here. How are you guys doing? Wow. Doing great. Special. Thank you. I love Barry Butts. <laughs> <laughs> you guys sound great. Wow, Barry. Thank you so you? much for... Are you, Barry? I'm here. I'm good, guys. How about yourself? Uh, We're doing great. great. We've been talking about the book, and I was hoping you could share with us uh, your your friendship and how you guys came about writing this book. You shared a little bit of a story with us on on the book, and and, uh, you guys got together and wrote a great book. Can you tell us a little bit about that? No, I would love to. Yeah, that's great. Um, You know, it's interesting. Bobby and I reconnected um, in the social media world just through Facebook a couple years ago. And uh, we played, I think we played in 1982 against each other. So it was 31 years uh, had gone between, uh, you know, the time we played in the juniors and then reconnecting socially. Uh, and at the end of 2012, I wrote my own book. I wrote a personal memoir of my junior tennis and college tennis career and, you know, my difficulties growing up in that environment that Bobby read and was very supportive of. And, um, and it was around Christmas of 2012 Bobby and I were just sharing private messages. He was just congratulating me on the, on the accomplishment and so forth. And, and in the course of those conversations, I, I, I had noticed that he was out about his uh, LGBT publishing company, and I congratulated him on that. And I said, you know, it's just great that you're, you know, you're active in your community and doing all this great, great social work and um, stuff like that. And he goes, you know, if I ever get the, the courage to, to, to tell my story, I'd like you to write it. And this was in, I think, December of 2012. And we just kind of left it there. Uh, and then it was, you know, fast forward about probably four or five months. I think it was like May of last year, almost about a year ago today. 
Um, and all of a sudden, I was just, you know, late at night, and all of a sudden, I get this message on my timeline on Facebook from Bobby. It just says, I think I'm ready. And uh, so that was it. And then we got on the phone the next day, and within a matter of a week, he was out here in California with a tape recorder and uh, telling me his story and worked the whole thing out. And that was basically, I think, June of June of last year. And then we just sat down and, you know, cranked the thing out over eight months, and uh, there we go. That is so great. Bobby, any thoughts on that? Yeah, I, I will tell you that, you know, you know, that you never know when in life you, that you get a blessing, you know. And, you know, Barry Bass, you know, was like the coolest kid in junior tennis. You know, he was like one of the best living guys in the world. And he was like, he's like one of those guys you definitely don't want to think that you're gay. <laughs> you definitely don't want a guy like Barry Bass or Kelly Jones or Rick Leach or, you know, you don't want these guys thinking you're gay. So, when, it, when Barry Buss, you know, of all people who I respected and admired, not only as a tennis player, but he was just a good guy. You know, he was always an authentic guy, and he was always fair and just a good guy. When he accepted me and embraced me, I felt like, you know what, maybe there's something here going on that I don't know about. Maybe there's more people that I'm afraid of and scared to discuss this with that might be able to help me with this. And I always felt like that the people like Barry and, you know, I really felt like that the straight community got on board with this story and it could be told from a straight perspective of really the struggles that some of me goes through and so many thousands of young people have gone through. And in some cases, and in many cases, quite honestly, still going through today, I felt like that we could really make a difference. So, you know, so Barry and I, you know, immediately hooked up and then, you know, to not my surprise, but to my incredible happiness, you know, his passion for the story. I mean, he was so passionate about it, and he did so much research on, you know, what it's like to be gay and what are the struggles and what are the things that we've gone through. And he did the whole background on Harvey Milk and what Harvey went through and what a difference he made. And so I was just absolutely enthralled by his passion to really dig into understanding this. And then the final thing happened is that he really was heartfelt about making a difference. And that's where we are today together as two best friends now. We'll be best friends for the rest of our lives is that Barry completely gets the importance of this story of making a difference. And because I'm not a household name, it actually makes it easier for us to reach more people because if you're LeBron James or if you're Andre Agassi or Pete Peppers, you know, yeah, you're gay, okay, that's great. They're not. But, you know, people would say, oh, that's kind of cool, but, you know, hey, I'd be gay too if I had a half a billion dollars. But for average people right. like myself and Jason Collins and, you know, pretty good football players like Michael Sams, for the average guy that had a good career, maybe not a superstar, but a super, you know, a, a super story about the struggles, what was it like for Michael Sams in high school? What was it like when he was in ninth grade playing Pop Warner football some of the struggles that he was feeling in the locker room. So I think that we resonate with the millions of kids that are playing, you know, soccer or tennis or golf or football in midtown America, and they're sitting in their room wondering, what the heck am I going to do about this? I'm pretty good, but I'm not going to be great probably. I think that's where my story resonates. And Barry did an off-the-charts job of telling that story in, in a way that um, – he deserves, in my opinion, an Academy Award. I mean, this guy's <laughs> off the charts. He's like the best writer 
on the planet. And um, I can brag more about you, Barry, but Patrick McEnroe and the USTA and all the people in the tennis world are just absolutely going crazy for your blogs and for all the stuff that you're writing about how to get American tennis back on track. So it's just not the Bobby Blair story he's done. He's really now touching the hearts of how to help American tennis. So, you know, that, that's why I am on Barry Bus. Well, you know, if I can add to that a little bit, Alex, first of all, thank you guys, really. Those are really kind words. Um, you know, one of the things I've noticed just, you know, in my 30, uh, 40 years in the tennis community is a lot of the, the tennis media portray our sport as this one big nonstop red carpet event. You know, if you watch your tennis channel and it's all just about the lifestyle. And, and, and it, it, you know, if you've grown up in the sport, it's just so, it's almost criminally negligent for them to not just to overlook the real the struggle that really goes on for so many of us because right. you know the overwhelming majority of us are not going to you know be in front of a camera and have a give a you know give a uh, an acceptance speech or a victory speech that's that's not the reality the reality is there's an awful lot more guys like myself who struggled with a difficult father you know tennis father bobby who struggled with a you know self-realization issue all throughout his career, and and the fact you know the fact of the matter is so I, you know my my goal here is to try to try to bring the struggle out of the darkness a little bit and, and start a communication that you know we as a sport have a responsibility to these young kids growing up. You know I was struggling in an abusive upbringing. Bobby is you know living out this horrible secret, you know where he just cannot you know he can't be himself. And, you know we were under the uh, you know under the guidance of the USTA and you know we were Junior Davis Cup players and you know, big-time college players and stuff, and there really was no support system in place at all for kids like us in the 1980s, you know, and it's important now that we fast forward 30 years, part of what part of this process that I've done with my book and Bob, with Bobby's book is to educate people that, hey, this stuff's going on out there. There are kids just like Bobby today at the Bulletary Academy, at college campuses who are hiding right now. And it's 2014, right. and uh, that's just no way to live, it, and it doesn't need to be that way. And, and my goal, you know, as a straight male, is to try to bridge, a, you know, start a create a bridge of communication here between both parties here. Because if you know, if kids like Bobby are doing doing the, the closet thing well, we don't know they exist. And if they don't, and if they're doing their thing well, you know, they 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 think they're getting away with it. So both parties are completely unaware that the other exists and that's and that's just not that's just not it doesn't need to be that way you know and these kids are right. these kids are struggling and in Bobby's story we uh we you know we showed the you know with the complexity of trying to 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 hide you know your entire existence from people well yeah. you know you make a great hey. point Barry, about that because Matt Dooley you know uh, Matt Dooley was a uh, a right. player that played at Notre Dame and um he uh, was a, a pretty good player. I guess he played three, four, five for Notre Dame, a top-ranked right. Division One team. And just two years ago, he tried to take his life and he tried to commit suicide because he couldn't tell his parents, he couldn't tell his coaches, he couldn't tell anybody. So in 2012, I think maybe or even 11, he tried to take his own life. And here we are in this decade where talented, beautiful young people still are committing suicide or trying to, screaming out that they can't live. And you know what's interesting, guys, is that what's, what's really hard about all this is that we don't want to let our family down. Like, if it was just about right. me today, you know, I could have done that. I could have lived with that. I always thought I had some decent skills. I always thought I could be okay. 
all these stuff. You know, if I just came out, maybe I'll just own the biggest big nightclub in New York City. You know, that's kind of like how I think. But you know what? I didn't want to let my mom down when she was dying of cancer. I didn't want to let my dad down, who was a bigot. I didn't want to let my uncle down, who ran Notre Dame football. He was an athletic coach. I didn't want to let my cousins down and my aunts and uncles and my coaches. And my 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 junior coach, Nick Bellateri, he's the manliest man, the toughest guy. He makes Billy, he, he makes Bobby Knight look like an amateur. Am I going to tell that guy? In 1983, I'm your number one junior here, man, but I'm gay? No way. So this is the problem is that we need these young people like me to know that Nick would embrace. You know what it did to me when Nick Bellateri stood behind that podium last year at the US Open and said, Bobby, I love you unconditionally. You're my son. You can be yellow, brown, black, white, gay, straight. I love you. That was the biggest game changer for me in my life. And you know what? The coaches that are out there now, they need to be saying that in the locker room. The very first day that freshman lands there in school, listen, if you have a drug problem, come see me. I'm going to help you. If you're having sexual orientation issues, I'm here to help you. We've got people that we can connect you with to help problems and help you understand how to feel better about addressing it and how you can live your life and be better for it. And that was the problem. I had nobody saying to me, Bobby, we don't care if you're gay. We care about that top ten lobby you hit on every three all points. You know? So it, right. And, I, and I'm still not seeing that yet. And that's why Barry talks about we need this conversation. We're going to go to college campuses. We want college coaches telling their kids it's okay to be gay. So when Notre Dame stepped up a month ago, two months ago, and did this incredible video accepting Matt Dooley, Right. That is the beginning of an amazing moment in NCAA sports where coaches say it's okay. Right. Hey, you know, guys? You know, I think it's a little further on it, Alex. Could, yeah. I could talk. What was that? Oh, okay. Go ahead. No, if you got if you got a cut, I understand. No, um, I, could, I wish we had more time because we, I could talk about this forever. We have so many more questions for Bobby, but we're coming up on a break. Uh, Bobby, I want to thank you so much for, for being with us and, and Barry for, for joining the show. Uh, we're kind of short on time, but Bobby, if you, we're going to extend an invitation for you to come back on the show at a later date because we have literally about eight, ten more questions that we didn't get to, but everything we covered was so good and so important. And um, any final thoughts, uh, Bobby, before we, before we sign off on this segment? I would just like to, you know, you know, I wouldn't be here if it wasn't for Barry Buff. I want to, Barry's on the phone tonight. I want to thank him from the bottom of my heart. You know, um, his partner in life, MJ Landry, she was incredibly supportive. Uh, she was a student at the Nick Voluntary Tennis Academy with me, and when she embraced me and said, Bobby, we love you, it's not a problem. You know, all of us girls are heartbroken, but it's okay. And, you know, when, all, when, when Barry and his people came to the forefront and really supported me. It gave me kind of like it was throwing gasoline on the fire. And so, Barry, I thank you very much. And, you know, Barry and I are going to be in New York at the U.S. Open. Uh, Billy Jean King is committed to be with us, Nick Voluntary, L.D. Granderson. We're all going to be together. Barry, of course, will be sitting right next to me. And we're going to be doing a book signing at the U.S. Open bookstore. And anybody that's uh, at the U.S. Open during Labor Day weekend, friend us on Facebook. We'd love to introduce you to Billy Jean and Nick and everyone, and we'd love to see you at our book signing. That is great. Barry, Bobby, congratulations for being with us. 
Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having us and uh, look forward to doing it again with you guys. Yes, and we'll definitely have you back on. We've got a lot more to cover. The book is Hiding Inside the Baseline. Thank you to Bobby Blair, Barry Butt, and don't go anywhere. We will be right back with Jan Ozu. Don't go anywhere. We'll be right back. Gatorade was created over 50 years ago when a University of Florida assistant football coach approached a team of physicians and asked them to determine why so many of his players lacked endurance. The researchers discovered two key factors were causing the Gator players to wilt. The electrolytes and the carbohydrates the players' bodies used for energy were lost through sweat and were not being replaced. The researchers took these findings to the lab and scientifically formulated a new, precisely balanced carbohydrate-electrolyte beverage that adequately replaced the key components lost by the Gator players through sweat and exercise. They called this concoction Gatorade. Fueling legends for over 50 years. Gatorade, is it in you? The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? Hi, this is Vic Braden, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Coach's Corner, Thursday, May 29th at 7 p.m. And welcome back to the Players' Lounge, presented today by Pro 10 Global Sports and Pro 10 International. Alex Ramirez here with Pete Zebron. Pete, our next guest today is a former uh, Davis Cup player who played uh, the best in the world. He won over six national and international events in both singles and doubles. As a coach, he has helped players at every level from beginners to the top 20 players in the world. He was the head coach at George Washington University in Washington, D.C., and for the past seven years, he has taken Holton Arms Tennis Team to a new height with a 97% winning percentage. Uh, he was voted Washington Post Coach of the Year in 2008 and Montgomery County Washington Post Coach of the Year in 2010. He has an instructional website, bit.tennis.com, and developed a product called The Sweet Spotter. Uh, Yano Zhu, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing great. Welcome. Thank you for having me. Absolutely, yes. And, and with me today is, is Pete Zebron. And uh, Jan, can you just get us started? How did you, uh, how did you get started in tennis, and, and what, what got you going in the sport? 
Uh, well, it's a long story. Actually, I uh, I grew up in Cameroon, which is uh, where Yannick Noah was from, and uh, his father was a dear friend of my dad's. And Yannick Noah actually went to school with my brother. So we, you know, with that connection in mind, and Yannick Noah doing so well, my parents thought that it would be a good idea for me to start playing tennis. Um, I had a good arm. I used to play ping pong and um, had a pretty uncanny ability for racket sports. So. I learned very fast and, uh, you know, started tennis actually quite late at 11 years old. And by 12 years old, I was national champion in Cameroon. By 15, I was on the Davis Cup team for Cameroon. So I, you know, rose to the top fairly quickly and then uh, caught the bug like all of us and, um, you know, just pursued my career in both France and then came to the United States to uh, come to college and do tennis in college. And uh, the rest is history. Yeah, that's, that's that a great. wonderful story, Jan. Thanks for sharing that. And, you know, uh, I, I dive pretty deep with respect to uh, looking at results, obviously not just ATP and uh, WTA, but, uh, you know, the ITF uh, events and the Challenger satellite futures and whatnot. Now, yeah, I know that there's a lot of uh, a lot of tournaments in Africa uh, for, for the juniors and, and you know, the, the, the futures and satellites. Can you talk a little bit about some of, uh, some of your favorite experiences in, in playing in Africa? You know, um, I was very fortunate to actually be uh, invited to be part of uh, an African development team that traveled throughout uh, the southern portion of Africa. So I got to play with and against some of the Black brothers. You might remember Wayne and Byron Black. Um, you know, yes. we played in uh, both. Correct, they're from Zimbabwe. So we actually toured in Zimbabwe. We toured in uh, Botswana and that region in Africa. And I had just a great time, you know. It was uh, lovely to be exposed to that kind of level of tennis. And, uh, you know, um, people don't actually know that African tennis has been quite good because you don't have so many players nowadays that are doing well. But, you know, the Black Brothers were a perfect example, including their sister. And, uh, you know, you had a couple of guys from uh, Morocco that were doing very well, like Orazi and uh, um, Kari Malami, if you remember. You also had Elanawi, uh, yeah. correct. Elanawi was doing very well. So I came at about the time where, you know, those guys were performing at the highest level, you know, um, at the international level. So I was exposed to that, and that was just a blessing. That is great. So you went through your career and you played tennis. Now, tell us a little bit about uh, when you caught the bug for coaching. When did you know that? That was also one of your gifts, is, is to share your experiences and, and give it to other players. You know, um, I must say that everybody in my family is an instructor in some respect. My father is uh, an eighth and ninth, ninth grade retired now, but uh, teacher. Both my sisters actually teachers as well. And my brother, who used to uh, play soccer, also coaches soccer in his uh, off time. So, you know, when I came to the United States, I realized very quickly that professional tennis was going to be hard for me because I had a lot of injuries. I had two knee surgeries by the time I was 23. So that put, a, you know, kind of a, a stop to my uh, aspirations to uh, play on the tour and be healthy. You have to be healthy to be successful on tour. So, you know, I started to teach tennis um, in Washington, D.C., and figured out very quickly that I had um, a pretty good gift. I was able to explain very complicated concepts in a very, very simple way, using analogies and uh, helping people to relate, you know, through their line of work, um, you know, uh, which is always the best way to kind of get people to understand what they're doing. 
if you're talking with a lawyer, you just sort of use legal terms to get them to do what you want them to do on the court. And uh, that was just an instant hit. You know, people loved it. Um, I guess they also probably loved a little bit of the French accent, to be honest. <laughs> right. um, but uh, yeah, they uh, they kept on coming. At one point, uh, I was really stretching myself to a little thin. I had uh, number one in the 12 in the area, number 14 in the number one in the 14, number one in the 16, number one in the 18, and then I had a young French player who came uh, and had wins against Leighton Hewitt in the juniors. So I had the full range of. Uh, um, you know, professional and amateur players that were performing at the highest level. So that really got me excited to be able to produce players of that caliber and keep them really honed in on their skills. Um, later on, um, if you know uh, Ronald Agenor from Haiti, when he came back yeah. from, uh, you know, re- his short retirement, uh, came to the Leg Mason here in Washington, D.C., and uh, asked me to uh, coach him along, you know, for two events which I did, and that too was also a very exciting um, learning experience to be exposed to someone who had wins against Andre Agassi and, uh, you know, to be able to be part of these workouts and help him to kind of visualize what he should be doing next. So, you know, uh, coaching has a lot of different facets. You know, you can be coaching really, really young kids uh, all the way to top 20 in the world, and this full range has really given my passion just a different dimension. Yeah, th- thanks for sharing that, Jan. I can I can certainly relate to you. Both of both of my parents were were teachers. My father was an English composition professor, and my mom a Montessori teacher. And actually, uh, when I was going to grad school, I taught a couple of years in, of high school and at a private university as well. So I I relate to that. And what, what you said, you know, talking to lawyers in their terms, I'm I'm a big I'm a big analogy user as well, so what you said about how you get your points across certainly works. And wanted to ask you to elaborate on a couple of things, namely your uh, your your unbelievable 97% winning percentage at uh, Holton mm-hmm. Arms Tennis and as well your your personal philosophy that you use on the court with the players. Well, that's a great question. And, uh, my, you know, I have a very special place for, for teachers, so what you just said really warmed me up a little bit. <laughs> Um, well, my Thanks. philosophy is quite simple. I believe that anybody can do anything that they set their mind to, you know. So when someone comes on the court, I don't really focus so much on technique, even though, you know, technically you have to be sound to be able to be injury-free. But I feel like a lot of times uh, people pay too much attention to technique, and, you know, technique is never going to be perfect. I think that's a hurdle to uh, people's improvement at times, you know, where they just want to have a perfect backhand like Roger Federer or an incredible serve, you know, or something that really, uh, to be realistic, is not going to be achieved overnight. You know, it takes time and it takes many, many years to be able to fine-tune those kind of shots. So my philosophy is quite simple. I just want them to understand how to be efficient. Okay, and being efficient on the court means, first of all, understanding the geometry of the court, which is something that people never talk about, really. You know, they focus on technique, but understanding where the angles are, understanding where your opponent's weaknesses are, you know, really focusing on the other person's game rather than on your own once you get into a competitive environment. So when I uh, started to coach the Holton Arms School, which is now almost 11 years ago, um, I came on and... Um, you know, the the team was somewhat broken apart. You know, there were a lot of girls that weren't playing because the former coach had left and uh, had left 
um, I guess, kind of a broken up team, and uh, girls didn't want to participate anymore. It's an all-girls school, uh, the Holton Arms School. So I came on, and I only had seven players, and you need at least 12 to be able to make a team. So it took me a little bit to uh, kind of build a team. And I did two things. The first one is um, the philosophy of the school was that when girls would come and try out, the one that weren't good enough would be cut. And I established a no-cut policy because I figured that if someone shows an interest for the game, they should be able to be part of the game. You know, that, So that was the very first thing that I instituted. I wanted to make sure that everybody had a chance to participate. So I established what we call the training team, which is a team that does not play matches, and then the traveling team, which is a, you know the team that actually competes for the school. So that was the very first move that I made. Um, the second move that I made is I made sure that uh, since the tryout period is so short, I needed to have a course that would get them ready in two weeks or less, you know, so that they would be competitively ready. And that had so much less to do with technical enhancement and so much more to do with getting them to really figure out who they're playing, you know, because at the rec level there aren't that many different styles of play. You know, you have your typical, um, you know, um, player who's extremely consistent. Um, you have people that are very fit, and then you most of the time have someone that just hits the ball very hard. So out of those three types of players, you need to figure out very quickly where you play. So I get the girls at the whole turn school to figure out you know, those three simple facts very quickly. And they learn to use, um, you know, the, the court and the geometry of the court to the best of their advantage. So that seems to have worked very well because in the last, uh, you know, 10, 10 and a half years, we finished first, uh, basically nine years out of 10 and finished second um, one season and tied for first another season. So we've been doing very, very well with, many different teams because every year I get a different batch of girls. And right. usually I get about one or two girls that are actually tournament players. The rest of them are just your typical average high school girls. And we've been able to do very well just clearly focusing on things that are not as conventional as what we're used to seeing out there. You know, so. That is great. So um, you, you did the coaching and you coached the, the team. What inspired you to start the website, and when did that actually kick off? When did it go online? That's quite funny. You know, um, it's uh, it's one of those things where you get ready, not really knowing what's going to happen, and then an opportunity comes along, and you just happen to have had everything prepared for that particular opportunity. I was writing a book um, at the time called The Tennis Revolution, and it was just kind of my thoughts that I had written down, you know, um, concepts that I thought were important for the new batch of tennis players to know about. That, again, had a lot less to do with technique, but more to do with every other part of the game that makes you a dominant player. And uh, I was introduced to uh, Will Hamilton, who's also from uh, my region, okay, who's the head pro at Fuzzy Yellow Balls that, you know, most people know about. And, uh, you know, he came up to me, and he's always looking for content. So we sat down and chatted, and uh, he took a quick look at my book and was blown away by, you know, the the content that I had written up. You know, it was basically ready to be filmed. So the two of us uh, did a a test. We uh, went to the Holton Arms School and filmed a 30-minute video on footwork with some of my top students. 
and he posted that video online and literally overnight that video went viral and became according to Google uh one of the top 20 uh, most watched sports video that day so we realized very quickly that we had struck a nerve that footwork obviously was something that people wanted to watch and i had a very personal way to explain footwork that people seemed to relate to so after that, you know, test trial, you know, um, Will Hamilton realized that this was really uh, a must-do. So we filmed a course together that subsequently was extremely popular. So I decided that, you know, that was probably another way for me to uh, reach as many students as I could. You know, as a teacher, as you very well know, you always want to really touch a lot of people and give them, uh, you know, feedback and give them instruction that can help them to grow their game. You know, my passion is always to touch as many people as I can. And that was the best vehicle to do that, you know, to be able to post videos online and have people watch them from all around the world. It's like having an international academy without necessarily being in one place at one time. So it was just a perfect fit for me, you know, to be able to have both an online presence as well as an offline presence. That is great. That is great. And now, and looking through your website, uh, I was checking it out. A lot of really good content. People should check it out and, and definitely sign up and, and learn as much as they can. Uh, but you also have a product called the Sweet Spotter. Can you tell us a little bit of how, how that came about? I think it's really interesting and how it's doing. Yeah, you know, what's funny about it is I was never exposed to baseball until I came to the United States. You know, as you know, it's mostly an American sport, and North American, that is, and then, um, you know, you have some pockets in uh, South America and Cuba. But in France, it is not a popular game. I mean, I had never seen a baseball bat until I came here. Never even touched one until that fateful day when uh, this one student of mine, who was also involved in uh, softball, came on the tennis court and actually left, you know, forgot her softball bat uh, and got into her car and drove off with her mother. So I was between lessons and I decided to fool around with it, you know, just to kind of see what that felt like. I'm a tennis player, so I decided to serve with it, you know, see if I could actually make contact. And uh, to my surprise, not only did I make great contact, the sound and the purity of the line of delivery that that forced me to, to sustain was insane. You know, it actually made me focus on my thoughts. It made me focus on things that are so difficult to teach students. And it made me focus on them so intuitively that I was like, you know, there's something there. I uh, obviously returned the bat because it wasn't mine, and I went to, uh, you know, the store and bought one. That was actually my very first bat, you know, and I actually rigged it. I built the grip to be more like a tennis racket grip and, you know, decided to practice with it and decided to have some of my students try it. And same thing, the very first uh, reaction I noticed is everybody had a huge smile on their face which, to be honest with you, when you teach, you know, young players, is not always the case. You know, sometimes they see the redundancy of, you know, um, their regular tennis exercises just kind of take over, and they're not so thrilled all the time, especially when you make them do something that they don't like. Uh, But with the bat, no one complained. You know, everybody had a smile. They were fighting to be able to uh, take turns. And, uh, I mean, I had never seen anything like it. You know, it was almost like an aha moment. Oh, wow, you know, maybe I should be teaching softball on the tennis court. And those <laughs> girls would pay more attention. So, you know, I, uh, I realized that there was something there. So I started to look online to see if there was a similar product 
out there, and uh, to my surprise, there wasn't. So, you know, at the George Washington University, I had uh, briefly attempted to get a, a mechanical engineering degree, and I did that for one semester and quit. But during that time, I had learned to, um, you know, draw uh, prototypes. So I started to draw a prototype for the tennis bat. And it goes back to all these skills that we acquire in life. You never know when they're going to come handy, you know, and uh, that became handy. So I looked around in the United States to find a manufacturer that would take me seriously enough to be able to produce something like this and was actually turned down by everybody I spoke to. You know, everybody laughed at me. Some people told me I couldn't be serious. Um, and then I uh, turned to uh, the Asian market and found the same manufacturer that makes um, bats for Nike. And um, obviously they didn't laugh at me and said, all right, we'll take on the project and, uh, and see how it goes. So that took about a year to go through the development uh, with different types of prototypes, you know, we tried different weights, different lengths, you know, different um, sizes and uh, different types of material and came up with uh, one composite that was very, very true to a regular tennis racket. You know, it's uh, we have three models. We have one that's nine ounce, about the size of a regular junior racket. We have uh, two adults. One is 11 ounces and one is 13 ounces. So the, the 11 ounce is actually for recreational players and the 13 ounce is more for real players and professional players. So I, you know, I decided I'm going to try to market it. I uh, did a crowdfunding campaign to kind of test the product and see if uh, you know, people would like it and got all the funding to be able to bring this dream to reality to uh, actually market and commercialize the product in uh, September last year. Uh, to my surprise, you know, the product actually became very popular very quickly. We now have, um, and I can't use their name, but we have five active um, Grand Slam winners that are practicing with it. Uh, we have a couple of um, um, junior Wimbledon and junior U.S. Open champions that actually ordered some as well. Uh, we have people all around the world that have ordered it and, uh, you know, returning some pretty amazing testimonials. Um, and also, you know, when you put something out, you never really know who is going to be using it and how they're going to be using it. So recently, and this person I can talk about, you know, she's a lady who's a tennis player, and she's the head of the therapy center at the Rogers Cup um, in, okay. um, in Toronto. She used to work for the Maple Leafs as a therapist as well, as well as the Blue Jays. So she's someone who is extremely reputable in Canada for therapy and shoulder injuries and, you know, kind of rehabbing pro athletes. And she contacted me and wanted to order one. So she ordered one and was amazed, you know, blown away. So, so much so that two weeks later she called me again and ordered an, an additional three you know, for her therapy centers, and she wanted to have it so that she could rehab people's shoulders because, you know, the sweet spot is a little bit heavier than a racket. It's extremely smooth to maneuver, so it's actually quite um, sound to be able to help with uh, injury prevention as well as rehab. You know, it builds your tennis muscles because it's so big uh, and strong, and it allows you to actually hit balls um, on the tennis court, which is hard when you train. You know, most of us go to the gym and you work with bands, you know, to try to build the tennis muscles. But none of it is really true to a real tennis swing. 
and there is no ball feedback, so you're not able to actually hit the ball and see what it does. You know, so you strengthen your muscles and you hope that, you know, the motions that you did in the gym or in the weight room will translate into gains on the court. With the sweet spotter, you work out because it's heavier than a racket. You train the very tennis muscles that you have and you're actually able to hit the ball. And if you hit right, if you hit in the perfect sweet spot, it goes straight just like a tennis ball. So it gives you, you know, uh, audible feedback as well as visual feedback it forces you to actually have to move up to the ball because if you try to make contact with that bat up at your shoulder, it's going to go all over the place. So people intuitively start to move towards the ball, you know, to make contact at their hip, which is exactly where we all want to make contact, hitting the ball on the rise, you know, at our uh, center of gravity. I mean, you know, I, I can go on and on. I mean, the results have been astonishing to me. And, um, you know, I have some of my players that are using it that have also improved quite a bit. I have my number one player at Holton who went from no ranking at all to now I think she's number two in the 18 in the Mid-Atlantic and she uses it on a regular basis. Um, you know, it's it's pretty amazing. It's nice to see. I mean, it's so uh, awesome to see that you've written it. Can you tell us real quick the name of the book again that you wrote? The name of the what? The book. Did you write a book, you said? Uh, well, I, it has not been published. It was actually published as a video uh, ebook, okay? And it's called oh, Tennis Star okay. but it's not available uh, on the market. The version that I wrote was called The Tennis Revelation. I'm considering actually publishing it because it's okay. full of concepts that are so different than your typical, um, you know, tennis concepts that are taught out there. You know, I talk about something called right. the gas tank. You know, the gas tank to me is a concept that I teach my girls. I tell them when you walk on the tennis court, you need to know who you're facing. Look at them. You know, that tells you right away if their gas tank is fit for battle, you know, how much gas they have. If someone is slightly overweight, then you know that their gas tank is going to be fairly small, you know. So that right there should already tell you what type of strategy you can use. You know, you really want to make somebody run around if their gas tank looks small. You know, now if your gas tank is not where it needs to be, you don't want to get into a really long, lengthy battle. You want to try to end the point quickly. That means going to the net or trying to go for bigger shots. You know, concepts like that that really have nothing to do with technique, but more to do with being aware of what you're facing and where the opportunities are. Right, that is great. So hopefully you'll be publishing that soon. That's a great, uh, great information to be out there. The more we can get out there for you know, the recreational players, uh, people that are trying to, to better themselves through private lessons and websites like yours and books like that are mm-hmm. definitely very helpful. Uh, the website is, is fifthdettennis.com. Now, is that a, uh, a membership-only website, or is there also some free content people can check out? Not at all. Uh, it's, uh, it's actually we have a ton of free content that people can uh, consume at their own leisure. And we have some evergreen courses that they can purchase. One is uh, called the Serve Accelerator, and uh, we got some great reviews about that. We have Dynamic Footwork Formula, which is really my uh, my favorite course because teaching people how to move and teaching people how to get to the ball to maximize opportunities is really my forte. And then there is one other course that we have filmed that we've made evergreen where I um, – I basically documented my uh, my process of getting myself ready for uh, 
competition. I have a strength coach who used to be the U.S. men's fitness champion. His name is Dan Reiser. And um, he prepared me for eight weeks um, prior to playing the Tabor Cup. Um, the Tabor Cup is um, a tournament where uh, each region brings a team of former college and professional players, and they play against each other. I think it's New England versus the Mid-Atlantic versus um, Middle States. And, uh, and then I think there is um, another region. I forgot the name. And it's basically a, a two-day competition where uh, we all face each other. You play at your position. So I play number one for the Mid-Atlantic and um, won all my matches and then won both my matches in singles and doubles, and we ended up winning the Tabor Cup because of it following, you know, this training that we documented. So it was great right. to basically have a piece where, you know, I walk everybody through um, exactly what I did, you know, to get ready, and then we actually have the results to back it up. Um, so timing was right, I think, for that one. <laughs> that is great. That is great. So great products out there. So the, the website is called fitsettennis.com. I encourage people to check it out. I've seen it myself. It looks fantastic. A lot of great information on there. Uh, the product is called the Sweet Butter. So is the website the Sweet? Actually, the website for uh, you you have it almost right. The website for the tennis lessons is fifthset.com, as in fifth set in tennis, and the right. Sweet Butter is sweetspottertennis.com. So that's where you got the tennis from. So it's fifthset.com okay. and sweetspottertennis.com. Perfect. We want to get that straight. We will have links for. Uh, both of these on, on Pro10Radio.com. And, uh, Jan, thank you so much. Jan's going to actually come back with us in a few minutes. We're going to do the Passion Shots radio show, if we can get a few of the technical glitches we're having on this end. So for right now, we're going to take a break. Jan, thank you so much for being with us, and we'll see you on the other side. Hold on one second. Thank you for having me. Do you know how fast you were going, son? Call me Ed. Do you know how fast you were going, Ed? You mean exactly? Yes, exactly. No, not exactly. How fast? Fast. Fast, sir? You were going very fast. Fast is my job, officer. Fast is your job? Yes, sir. What kind of job? I deliver, sir. What do you deliver? The world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. I thought Jimmy John's had the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. Jimmy John's does have the world's greatest gourmet sandwiches. So you deliver for Jimmy John's? I deliver for Jimmy John's. So do you always deliver fast? I always deliver fast. How fast? I deliver subs so fast you freak. It's not smart to freak a cop, son. You didn't order Jimmy John's sub, sir. So if I did order a Jimmy John's sub, when would I get it? Now. What if I don't want it now? Then call later. Or I can pick it up myself. Or you can pick it up yourself. Because I'm pretty fast too. I'm sure you are, sir. Very fast. I believe you, sir. Fast than you. No way, sir. Way faster. In your dreams. You dissing me, son. No, sir. I'm polite. Fast and polite. Very polite and very, very fast. Is that a challenge, son? No, sir. It's a fact. Let's burn rubber, kid. It wouldn't be fair. Why not? You've got a fully blown V8 Camaro with slicks and headers, so I've got a 10-speed bike. I'll let you off with a warning. <laughs> they try and make it seem like they want to protect kids from smoking, but in reality, they've been targeting children for decades. They used to make and sponsor cartoons to market cigarettes. But despite these shows being popular among children, they claimed that these cartoons were for an adult audience. Then they paid movies to feature their brands. Some of your favorite superhero movies have characters that the industry actually paid to smoke on screen. One industry exec said that we must continue to exploit new opportunities to get cigarettes on screen and into the hands of smokers. And now they carefully place posters and other ads at convenience stores and push new products that look and taste just like candy. Who eats candy and sees ads that are three feet off the ground? Come on. So you want to know why I'm tobacco-free? Because I don't want their marketing to reach my little system. That's why. Learn more at whydoyouthink.com. That's the letter Y, do you think, dot com. 
Hi, this is 10-time Grand Slam doubles champion Ann Smith, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Players' Lounge, Thursday, May 29th at 7 p.m. Pacific. You are listening to Passing Shots with Pete Zebron on the Pro 10 Radio Network, a production of Pro 10 Global Sports. Enjoy the show. And welcome back. Pete Zebron on Passing Shots with special guest tonight, Juan Azu. And Juan, welcome back to the show. Indeed. I want to talk a little bit about uh, the Roland Garros tournament going on right now. Interesting uh, that uh, yesterday we lost both Australian Open champions, Stan Warinka and Lee Na. Uh, sort of a tough draw for Stan right out of the gate, 41st-ranked uh, uh, Guillermo Garcia Lopez. And then... Yeah, and then Lee, uh, you know, had a really good clay court uh, season this year. Um, uh, played Sharapova very tough. Uh, Sharapova had to dig deep to uh, to win that match and, uh, you know, had some other pretty good results. Uh, lost a three-setter to Sarah Ronnie coming in, but I don't think anybody really expected her to uh, to lose to the 103rd-ranked player in the world. Your, uh, your thoughts on that, Jan? You know, um, I train at the National Training Center in Paris at Roland Garros, so I'm very familiar with those courts. And I can tell you that the weather, to me, was a big factor. You know, any time that you have uh, high levels of humidity, it actually has a tendency to favor lower-ranked players because it really evens out the levels. You know, it gives a chance. The ball doesn't travel as fast. You know, it bounces high. It slows down quite a bit. So, you know, someone like Garcia Lopez, who is truly a clay quarter, going against Stan, and Stan is a very heavy hitter who needs to, you know, have that edge, I could see how, you know, um, the weather and, you know, the damp condition could literally sway, you know, um, everything in uh, in Garcia's favor. As far as uh, um, Mladonovic, you know, she's a French player, so she trains at that National Training Center. It's her home turf. And that, too, really gives you kind of a an edge, your home court advantage. You know, being French, I am sure that she was strongly encouraged by the French uh, public. And, uh, you know, they always say if you want to take down a seed, it's better to take them down early in the draws, you know, before they get comfortable with their environment and, you know, the the tournament setting. Usually, you know, seeds drop in the first first round, second round, third round, you start to lose a lot less than, than that. You know, by the time they're in the fourth round, they're in full gear, and it's very hard to beat them. Indeed. And, uh, you know, Garcia Lopez and Warenka actually played four times previously on clay, and they split those two apiece. So, uh, mm-hmm. you know, not as big a surprise per se. Uh, but I want to talk to you about Stan. Obviously, getting the, he's knocking on the door for quite a while, big, win, big wins for him. In, uh, in Melbourne, getting the job done there, and then obviously coming back and, and winning Monte Carlo, huge tournament, first Masters 1000 for him. But um, what do you see on the horizon for, for Stan Warinka for uh, uh, possibly the, la- the rest of 2014 and into next year as well, Jan? You know, he's one to watch, but I'll tell you, you know, the longevity of uh, player's performance really, really gets uh, tested. 
as the season, you know, goes on, uh, you know, we're looking at six months worth of tennis already. And you see, you know, you see a guy like Djokovic had a, you know, a wrist injury. You see Nishikori, you know, suffering from uh, injuries. So the less seasoned um, superstars are starting to show signs of weakness, you know. Um, it's a long season. So I have the feeling that actually losing the first round for Stan is going to be almost, uh, you know, a, a good thing because he's going to be able to kind of uh, gather his thoughts and be refreshed and really train and concentrate for Wimbledon. I'm not mm-hmm. sure that he's going to win another Grand Slam this season because this is usually when, you know, the top players like the Nadal and, you know, the Djokovic and even Federer, who's uh, still around and playing quite well, start to really gather, gather steam. You know, that stretch between the French Open and Wimbledon really sets all these players apart. And then you follow that up with the grueling you know, uh, summer season, that's when we tend to lose a lot of heads. You know, like you see the Del Potro now, he's also out because of injuries. I mean, all those guys, it's hard to sustain that longevity that is required to be able to be really good. I have high hopes for Stan, but um, I don't see him doing very well um, towards the end of the, the season. I see him kind of sustaining a good level of performance, maybe quarters and semis, of most of the tournaments that they'll play, but I think he's going to have a hard time. Yeah, looking at that from uh, from a positive spin, if you will, losing early, this is the last clay courts uh, tournament of the year, and I, I cover Cincinnati every year, Jan, and, you know, mm-hmm. Federer uh, has won that five times, but he's also lost, uh, you know, his first match out a couple of times, Murray way back when, and Karlovich uh, a few years ago, and Roger was joking, saying, well, you know, I'd ra- uh, I'd rather win it or lose early rather than be in the quarters every year. So, uh, yeah, Stan, uh, as you mentioned, uh, will have extra time uh, into the uh, into the grass court season. You mentioned just in, in that last description um, someone else who, who has a little bit on the injury bug right now. Um, Kei Nishikori, a very impressive year, but, uh, you know, a difficult uh, first-rounder against uh, Martin Klesan, who's won a clay court tournament this year. But, uh, wow, uh, Nishikori really uh, had a great run in, in Rome, uh, played uh, Nadal, or Madrid, excuse me, uh, probably mm-hmm. should have beaten Rafa if his body, um, you know, held out a little bit more. But, uh, again, um, big question for Nishikori is uh, can he stay healthy? Your, your thoughts on uh, what, uh, what, what's in Kay's future? Yeah, I mean, I think you you nailed it. You know, this is a player that I think if he had been healthy, would have really given Nadal a, a run for his money. I think he would have won it if he had stayed healthy. He was playing brilliantly. This is also a player that's fairly short who really relies on his um, speed and his core coverage. So if his legs or his back is at all, um, you know, less than 100%, I can see how, you know, he's going to have a hard time dominating you know, he trained quite hard to be able to uh, sustain again, you know, um, that clay court season, which is really grueling. Um, and um, I hope for him that this is actually good news as well to lose early and be able to uh, get some uh, some time off and heal properly. You know, and this is a, a very long stretch for them. Um, I see him actually doing a little bit better than Stan. Um, you know, I don't know why, but he's... Uh, to me, he's a lot less um, up and down. Stan can be up and down quite a bit, but K is usually very steady. So I actually see him doing very well in the hardcore season. He's a counterpuncher. 
he's somebody that um, is not going to overdo it, you know. Uh, and the hardcore season, I think, is going to be a lot more favorable to him than to Stan. Uh, what uh, absolutely, and putting your coach's hat on for a moment, Jan. Uh, obviously, Brad Gilbert worked with uh, Kay for a little bit, but uh, Michael Chang is in his camp right now, and uh, wondering your thoughts on uh, what you think Michael has done with respect to Kay's game at this time. I think the most important part is belief. You know, to me, um, you have a lot of players out there that have the talent. Uh, but mentally, you have to really build a different type of uh, of thought process, believing that you belong, believing that you can be there, and uh, surrounding yourself with people who have made it. You know, Michael Chang has won the French Open. Michael Chang has been in the top five for a decade, you know. So this is somebody that can certainly give him that extra edge and that level of experience that will make him understand the requirements to be able to perform at that level and to stay uh, a top caliber player, you know, having that discipline and having that work ethic and making sure that you have the proper preparation. You see that trend, you know, with all these players surrounding themselves with former greats, you know, uh, people that have actually won tournaments. Um, So I think that Michael Cheng has really given him that belief, you know, that he can uh, play at that level and that he belongs there which is really key to uh, starting to make your mark in the top five. Indeed. I, I, I like that matchup, uh, that partnership quite a bit. And someone else, uh, we talked about the ups and downs, someone who's very down, who just got his first win uh, a couple of days ago for the first time since February in uh, Rotterdam, uh, Jersey Janowitz, who, uh, let's not forget, got all the way to the semis at Wimbledon last year and, and was playing Andy Murray very tough. I believe he's up a set and a break and uh, lost mm-hmm. his way a little bit. But, um, you know, Jersey, uh, big game and um, was injured uh, uh, shortly after Wimbledon. I saw him play. Uh, actually, James Blake got him in the first round in Cincy when uh, Janowitz wasn't 100% and Blake was on his way out. But um, your thoughts on maybe what isn't clicking for, for Jersey and uh, taking it a step further, Jan, who do you think might be, uh, you know, a very good coach in, in Janowitz's corner to get him to maximize his potential? You know, Jersey to me is, uh, is an intriguing player. He uh, strikes me as a little bit of a head case. You know, he tends to get very angry. I've seen him at the, uh, the U.S. Open cracking rackets and, you know, uh, really screaming at uh, the Empire and having a hard time controlling his nerves. So to me, a good coach would be somebody who would really – uh, calm him down and give him um, this uh, zen, you know, uh, feedback. Um, I don't know who would be available at the moment to uh, to help him out, but um, um, God, I forgot the name of the, the Australian coach who's a, a commentator. Um, oh, Cahill, Darren Cahill. Cahill, yes, Darren. Um, Darren, I think, would be kind of a calming force for somebody like Jersey, you know, helping him to really... Uh, control his nerves, you know, and really focus on the task. Um, everybody else, I think, would have a hard time helping him to stay relaxed and allowing his uh, his game to really dominate because he has a very dominant game. He's big serve, big strokes, you know, beautiful slice. He comes to the net quite a bit and he's able to really, you know, um, uh, press you. 
And uh, But if you get angry, obviously, you're not able to control yourself as well, and you're not making the right choices all the time. You know, he also got injured, which is unfortunate for him. But that also sometimes has to do with your level of preparation as well as the choices that you make on the court. You know, so a guy like Monfils is a perfect example. Monfils has seen a lot of injuries because the choice of style that he picks, you know, and the type of, you know, flamboyant um, strategies that he allows himself to get into um, causes him a lot of problems. You know, so Jersey to me is kind of in the same... um, um, boat as uh, Monfils. You know, these are players that really need to learn how to be efficient, calm, and uh, you know, just allow themselves to to improve and uh, and and stay zen, like the Djokovic and the Nadal and the Federer, especially if you have the game for it. Indeed, and I, speaking of uh, the firepower and uh, you know, flashes of, of anger and uh, disgust on the court, I'm going to bring someone up who. Uh, who, uh, who I've seen a little bit of, and very intriguing player who I think has a big game, and um, uh, a very intriguing uh, second-round match on. Uh, Benoit Pair is playing Batista Agut, and, uh, you know, Pair, wow, uh, when he's on, uh, he's had some very impressive results in the last year or so, and, you know, Batista Agut, I believe, is seeded 27th. Um, talk to me a little bit about uh, Benoit Pair and, uh, and this matchup, second round against Batista Agut. You know, Benoit is a very good player, very tricky to play, you know. Uh, again, long, uh, perfect for the French pedigree. You know, players are just very talented, you know, uh, great on clay, able to do anything and everything, you know, but sometimes lack a little bit of uh, that mental edge that's necessary to break through. Um, you know, I'm going to go with... Uh, Batista, to be honest with you, <laughs> on that one. Um, you know, it's a tricky match, but, uh, you know, um, Latin players have the tendency to be a little less, um, a little more disciplined. You know, they they rely on things they know will work. They're more efficient. You know, and I have the feeling that uh, it's going to work uh, against Benoit. You know, he's going to have the French crowd, but the French crowd can turn against you very quickly, as you know. If you're not playing well, they can boo you any second. If you're playing great, everything is fine. But, you know, if uh, Batista gives him a hard time, um, you know, they could start to go against him uh, very quickly. So I'm actually going to pick Batista on that one. Okay, yeah, absolutely. He's uh, obviously a seed uh, this year. He's had a very good... uh, you know, last few months especially. So I'm looking forward to, to that match. And another uh, intriguing second-round match, Jan, um, someone who's really uh, had a very good start to 2014 has come through qualifying just about everywhere he's gone since he hasn't yet gotten into the main draw, but that's going to change very quickly. Uh, Dominic team, and, uh, you know, he's of Austria. He's into the second round, and who does he get? Uh, Rafael Nadal. And uh, one who... Uh, Want to get your thoughts on uh, on team? If you've been able to see him play, who he reminds you of, and uh, you know, boy, does he have any uh, chance to do any uh, making inroads on Dolls game tomorrow or uh, the next round? Well, he's definitely a young player to watch. You know, it's uh, it's funny. <laughs> he just uh, he just beat um, one of our sweet spotter pupils. Um, you know, um, at a challenger, and uh, really rocked him. So that got my attention, and um, I had seen, you know, just kind of glancing at draws 
um, that he had been doing very well, you know, like you said, qualifying and even clipping a couple of players that did not expect it. And obviously now he's going up against Nadal. It's tough to play Nadal at the French. You know, it's tough to play Nadal on uh, uh, the Chatrier court. You know, it's tough to uh, play Nadal, period, you know, on clay. Um, I think he'll have a great showing. I hope for him that he wins at least one set. I think it's going to be very tough to uh, to take Nadal down. Um, the conditions also I don't think will favor TM. Nadal is uh, great on clay no matter what conditions he's, uh, he's put against. If he's a dump, you know, it's going to really help Nadal's game because Nadal can cover everything. Uh, Nadal doesn't lack any power, so, you know. But to be able to beat Nadal at the French, I think you need... Uh, more firepower than uh, Dominic can muster. You know, I think uh, uh, you need to be able to uh, come out with the goods. You know, that's how he, the only match I ever lost was against a player that just overpowered him. You know, and that's hard to do against Nadal, uh, the French, you know, especially <laughs> on a five-set match. So I sure. think Nadal will win. I hope it's not a three-setter. I hope for him that it's a, it's a four-setter, but I have the feeling it's going to be three straight sets. Yeah, I I, uh, I think the nice thing is obviously that's going to be a primary telecast all around the world with with Nadal playing at Roland Garros or no matter where he plays and uh, I think uh, Dominic Team is going to is going to win a lot of fans uh, around the world with respect to people who are uh, tuning in and seeing him play for the first time because it's uh, he, he really gives it his all and uh, yeah I, <coughs> excuse me I I hope that goes uh, more than three sets as well but we shall see. And um, something that was really a, a theme the early part of this year, Jan, especially in in Australia and New Zealand, and it spilled over a little bit into uh, February and March, is uh, retirements, both on the men's and women's side. And uh, we had mm-hmm. four men retire in the first set, uh, uh, Almagro, uh, Montañez, Dodage, and uh, Tommy Haas was leading 5-2 against Zop of Estonia when he retired. I think he's 36, and... Uh, uh, you know, this boy, I don't know how much longer Tommy has. That opens up a nice opportunity for, for Gail Monfils. But your thoughts on um, the number of injuries that we have seen earlier in the year and the fact that uh, four men out uh, retired in the first round, uh, excuse me, first set of their first match. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, talking a little bit about uh, Haas in particular here. Uh, again, you know, I'm going to blame that one on the weather. You know, it's been extremely cold in Paris, which is, uh, you know, very unseasonable. And, uh, you know, that is really definitely a factor that will hurt players um, from all levels, you know. Um, Those guys have one-handed backhand, uh, you know, both uh, Haas and uh, Almagro, um, you know, which means that they don't get the help of their second hand. You know, they really have to just brush, they have to cover a lot of court. Um, you know, uh, at least for Haas, he's older. So this is somebody that really needs the conditions to be in his favor. He needs mm-hmm. to be able to uh, warm up properly. You know, being 42 years old myself, I know how important it is for the conditions to be perfect, <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, uh, to be able to produce your best tennis. Um, that was a little bit of a surprise uh, to me because he hasn't played that much. You know, so maybe he was nursing something that we don't know about. You know, um, that's the only kind of um, question that I have for him, you know, because not all of them are not necessarily that open about what's going on in their lives. 
Um, but we didn't see him that much in um, previous events feeding into the French True. Open. Um, yeah. And then to be up 5-2 and then to just stop, that tells me that it must be an injury that's a bad one. You know, because usually they would at least try to finish the first set and see how he goes. He really just pulled out, you know, and uh, so it must be something serious. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's too bad. As much as I've ever seen personally, he beat Roddick in Indian Wells, and he's just a, a gamer, obviously, uh, you know, spent a considerable amount of time off the court. I, I read where um, this is actually the 23rd match of Haas's career that, that he had to retire in. So that that's a big number. Obviously, Tommy's been on tour for a long time, but still uh, very uh, disappointing to see that uh, at a, at a mm-hmm. major. I want to bring up a, yet another very intriguing second-round match, and um, uh, two very flashy players. I don't think anybody uh, on on tour wants to play these guys, but uh, the interesting note here, Jan, they both came from two sets to love down in their first-round match. They're going to play each other. Uh, the new Mr. Davis Cup, Roddick Stepanek, is going to play uh, Mikhail Yuzhny. Um Credit to both those guys from coming to two sets to love down, uh, and they, they both you know, have spent a lot of time on the court. They're going to play each other, but uh, how do you see that one uh, panning out? You know, that's an interesting one. <laughs> I, I admit, I'm right there with you. You know, uh, both of them have very uh, different styles. I mean, Radek Stepanek has a tendency to want to move forward and come to the net. And, um, you know, Yuzni is excellent at the baseline, just uh, kind of a power player, but the power baseline player. Um, I have the feeling that, to me, Yuzni has a better chance than Radek Stepanek, uh, just because I think he's a, a more complete player. He, he's also more comfortable on clay than Radek is. You know, Radek moves forward and really presses you, and I think, again, the damn conditions will, you know, um, will really alter his ability to, uh, to move forward. Yuzni is an excellent passer. And um, so I, I'm going to go with uh, Mikhail on that one. And, um, you know, just simply because I think he's a steadier player and he just has more of a clay court game and the conditions, the damp conditions, if the weather doesn't get better in Paris will really favor his style. But definitely a great match to watch. I mean, this is going to be a very colorful match with a lot of great shots and great shot making. And uh, both of them are just uh, great players. They're older. So it's also going to be interesting to see um, a more conventional way to strike the ball, at least from Reddick's side, and um, see how that uh, pan out. But I'm going to pick Yuzni for that one. Yeah, I'm going to go with that as well. Um, Stepanek, obviously a, a warrior out there. Nobody likes to play him, but I, I agree. I think uh, a steadier game, especially in the conditions that we've seen so far in, in Paris this week, uh, I think that favors uh, Mikhail Yuzni as well. And uh, Jan, we're going to uh, we're going to come back and talk about the WTA side at Roland Garros when we come back after this break. Don't go away. Sounds good. Gatorade was created over 50 years ago when a University of Florida assistant football coach approached a team of physicians and asked them to determine why so many of his players lacked endurance. The researchers discovered two key factors were causing the Gator players to wilt: the electrolytes and the carbohydrates the players' bodies used for energy were lost through sweat and were not being replaced. The researchers took these findings to the lab 
and scientifically formulated a new, precisely balanced carbohydrate electrolyte beverage that adequately replaced the key components lost by the Gator players through sweat and exercise. They called this concoction Gatorade. Fueling legends for over 50 years. Gatorade, is it in you? It's time to change the way you change filters, bulbs, and batteries. Meet Joe Filter. The quality of your home's water, the cleanliness of your home's air, and the function of your smoke detectors are issues crucial to health and well-being, but they are often ignored. The solution? Let Joe Filter come to your home on a set schedule to change air and water filters, alarm batteries, and hard-to-reach light bulbs. Get them all taken care of for just a few dollars a month. Joe Filter stocks all the materials and knows when they need to be replaced. He'll also dispose of old filters, bulbs, and batteries in an environmentally safe manner. Call today for more information and let Joe Filter put your home on autopilot. The Den Academy is a family affair. You know, my dad, my wife, my brother, myself, we're all a part of it. We all grew up in tennis. We all are passionate about tennis. Being on the court with your son is good. We both have a good time with it. We both say things differently but mean the same thing. Let's see the grip. Don't change it. Oh, I saw it. I saw it. What makes a great coach is many things, but it ultimately comes down to seeing the game correctly and then being able to communicate that to the player efficiently. Right? So just nice and whippy behind that ball. When you finally get through to a player and you get them on the same page as you are, it's, it's a pretty cool feeling. Oh! Oh, nice! Giddiness. You get giddy. You know, you get excited. It's, it's, it's this competition. This is emotion. It's, it's intensity out there. I mean, you know, that's what passion is all about, right? Hi, this is Vic Braden, and you're listening to the Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on the Coach's Corner, Thursday, May 29th at 7 p.m. <laughs> Welcome back to Shots on the Pro Video Network. Pete Zebron with Jan Azor. And Jan, welcome back. We're going to talk about the women's side of Roland Garros going on right now. And um, probably something that got everybody's attention in, in looking at the draw right out of the gate is uh, a potential, probable Serena Williams, Venus Williams third round match. And uh, both ladies are one win away from that taking place. Uh, Serena seems to be everyone's uh, favorite right now for the most part, especially with uh, with losing uh, today. Your thoughts on uh, Williams? Well, first of all, I think it's just wonderful that these two might have a shot to uh, play each other. I think it's been a couple of years since we've had uh, that there uh, face each other in singles. So I'm looking forward to seeing the two sisters go at it. Uh, it's always a, a very curious match between the two of them where uh, Serena uh more emotional than Venus. Um, I don't think Venus has been able to beat her in a couple of years, though. So, um, you know, I think Venus, um, Serena will be able to uh, prevail. But it's always an interesting match, you know, <laughs> because it's never 
um, as one-sided as one would uh, would expect. You know, there is that sister um, relationship that kicks in, and uh, they're doubles partners, they're best friends, they're sisters. So there's a lot more going on than just tennis, and uh, that creates some uh, um, very unpredictable results at times. You know, but obviously Serena is the big favorite. I'd be very surprised considering how, um, you know, Venus, although Venus actually did well in Dubai, so, you know, we can't take that away from her. Um, you know, but Serena is just, I think, in a league of her own right now. It's, it's very hard to beat. Are you there? Yeah, I think Hello? you may have. Can you hear me okay? Oh, yeah, I hear you just fine. Oh, there we yeah. go. Oh, uh, no, you know what? There we go. He's back. Uh-huh. Yep, I'm back. What happened. Yep. I, I hear you just fine. Okay, yep. There we and, go. Um, yeah, hi, congratulations. Uh, um, Jeannie Bouchard and Monica Puig uh, each won their first WTA titles on Saturday in Strasbourg and Nuremberg. Um, Yawn, and uh, you know, there's always a question, uh, more so on the men's side. Do you know should people play the week before a major? And um, uh, usually, the guys don't have great results. And um, Jeannie Bouchard only lost two games in her first round match. Monica Puig, on the other hand, uh, sort of a crummy draw for her. She got Sam Stoser, who obviously was a finalist and two-time semi-finalist at Roland Garros. She only won two games, but. Um, want to get your thoughts on, on both players and, and sort of the concept of, um, of playing a tournament the week before a major heading in. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm, I'm not a big fan of uh, playing, uh, you know, a tournament, a warm-up tournament before a Grand Slam. Really fitting into, you know, the, the biggest, grueliest uh, draw that you can possibly be entered into. Um, usually people who play it, I don't think, have any aspirations of going very far. Um, you know, they're just either chasing points or, um, you know, trying to prepare for the tournaments to follow the French Open. Um, obviously, Bouchard, being, um, you know, who she is and seated, uh, did not play uh, a very confident player. She beat Shahar Pierre. And uh, Shahar has not been playing well in at least two, three years now. So that was not too difficult of a first draw, I don't think. Um, Also, Bouchard is a different caliber player than Puig. She's somebody who makes it in the third or fourth round of pretty much every tournament that she enters. Um, So she's used to, again, um, you know, that level of play, um, the demands that, you know, being that type of caliber player requires. Uh, Puig, to me, is a little less experienced at that level, and obviously, like you said, you know, going up against Sam, um, that's just not a very good gift <laughs> in your first round. Sam has an insane uh, kick serve, and he's just a, a brutal, dominant player from the back, and you just need to have a bigger game than Puig. Puig is very short. I don't even think she's five feet tall. So um, how do you handle that kick serve uh, when Sam is on? Um, I don't even know how to answer that question. So I'm not surprised. Um, I just don't think that Puig and Bouchard have the same aspirations in the French. Uh, Bouchard has the potential to go farther, but I don't think that that was a bright idea to play so much tennis before the French Open because she's going to be facing some really tough uh, opponents. You know, I give her maybe another two rounds and then we'll see. I think think maybe she decided to play that because 
some pretty poor results on clay and didn't have much match play. Are you guys there? I'm having a hard time hearing. Yeah, I, I'm here. Are you able to hear me, Jan? Yeah, I hear you very well now. Okay, good. Yeah, I think the only uh, players, men or women, who uh, who benefit from playing the week before are um, are, are Burdich and Ferrer, and they've made it a point. They usually play a, a, a warm-up tournament before a major. Uh, they didn't this time, but, uh, you know, I, I agree with you. That's not really uh, smart scheduling. Again, congratulations to Jeannie and Monica for winning, but, um, you know, might have to rethink that going forward. And um, before we come up on another break, Jan, I want to ask you about uh, – Another very interesting, intriguing second-round match on the women's side. Uh, Svetlana Kuznetsova, a two-time major champion who, in fact, won Roland Garros in 2009. Um, I, I think she's a little bit of a dark horse. She's got a, a very, very uh, heavy-hitting, uh, my, my version of uh, the women's version of Fernando Gonzalez. Uh, Kuznetsova is going to play Camilla Georgi. I was wondering uh, if we can get your thoughts on, um, on that match before we go to a break. Um, yeah, that's that's a tough one to call. I mean, you know, obviously, Kuznetsova um, was number one in the world. You know, let's not forget that. Um, so that means that she's used to being at that level. She's been a little uh, unpredictable lately. You know, she's come close but has not been able to close a lot of the matches that she um, she led. I think she was up on Raduanska a couple of weeks ago uh, and had a chance to close it and didn't close it. Um, and Georgie, you know, she too um, is quite unpredictable. She's had some great wins, but she's also had some really weird losses. Um, it's going to be interesting to watch that one. You know, I uh, I wouldn't put my money on either one of them because it's just too too close to call. I think. <laughs> yeah, I'm going. I'm going to go. Um, I'm going to go with Svetlana. I, I really think that she uh, she could be a potential dark horse. Maybe not to win it, but. Uh, to certainly do some damage, although she has won it in the past. And, um, mm-hmm. Jan, we're going to come up on a, another break right now, and we'll come back and finish up uh, the show when we come back after this. Hey, Thirst, can I try out a few Coke Summer sound effects on you? Yes. Cool. You okay with this? And this? And what about this? Gotcha there, Thirst. That wasn't sound effects. That was a Coke. I'm no longer thirsty. You're so out of here. Coca-Cola. Open happiness. What is this bill for $562? Let me call these people. Thanks for calling Big Tobacco. How can I be of assistance? Hi, I was going through my mail and saw this bill saying I owe $562 for smoking-related expenses. That's correct, ma'am. Yeah, what's the deal with this bill? You see, smokers miss more work and retire earlier, which costs Nevadans $903 million in lost productivity per year. Also, smokers get sick with diseases like lung cancer and emphysema, costing another $565 million in medical expenses. So, when you add it up and divide by a total number of Nevadans, it comes out to $562 per Nevada household. Okay, but I don't smoke. Well, whether you smoke or not, every Nevadan pays the bill. You know what? I'm not paying this bill. Actually, you already did. And you'll be making the same payment again next year. Well, thank you for your call. Hello? Is smoking worth it? Learn more at SmokeFreeVegas.com. That's SmokeFreeVegas.com. Or for free help quitting smoking, call 1-800-QUIT-NOW. That's 1-800-QUIT-NOW. Made possible by funding from the Department of Health and Human Services. 
Little Caesars, home of the $5 hot and ready pepperoni pizza, now has a deep, deep dish pizza with eight crispy caramelized corner slices and even more cheese and pepperoni. So head on down and grab a large for just eight bucks and tell them Alan Varner sent you. They won't know who that is, but as a voice actor, I'm always trying to get my name out there. Check me out at alandoesvoices.com. That's A-L-A-N doesvoices.com. But first, get the new deep, deep dish pizza. It's hot and ready every day from 4 to 8 p.m. for just 8 bucks, only at Little Caesars. Pizza, pizza. At participating locations plus tax. Hi, this is Jeff Saldenstein. Hi, this is Kenda Hart. Hi, this is Dick Gould. Hi, this is John Embry, and you're listening to The Coach's Corner on Pro 10 Radio Network. Catch me live on Wednesday, May 28th at 1 o'clock Pacific. Welcome back to Passing Shots. Pete Zebron with Jan Ozu. And Jan, welcome back. I want to talk a little bit about the the women's matchups in Roland Garros. Get your pick uh, before we go back to uh, get your selection on the ATP side. But, uh, wow, what a loaded top quarter we have. We have Serena Williams, Venus Williams, Sam Stoser, Dominika Sabolkova, Sabina Lasicki, and Maria Sharapova all in one quarter of the draw at Roland Garros. Um, obviously, most people looking to pick Serena Williams out of their uh, potential blockbuster quarterfinal against Maria Sharapova. Want to get your thoughts on uh, who's coming out of that quarter as well as your pick for the ladies Roland Garros champion in 2014? You know, it's a very interesting draw, like you very well put it. It's very rare to have Sharapova on the same side of the draw as uh, Serena. You know, it's only very recently with, uh, you know, the uh, the rise of the Raduanskas and, um, you know, Lena, that she's actually been pushed uh, to that side of the draw. I still think that Serena, um, out of all of them, will come out on top. But I actually think that she's, she's going to come out of it bruised. Um, you know, it's going to be quite some pretty tough battles, both emotional battles and uh, and physical battles. And uh, I actually pick Raduanska for this one. I think she's... Uh, She's long overdue. Uh, Lena is out of the draw, so um, I just don't see who's going to be able to give her a hard time on that side. Um, so I think that she will benefit greatly from uh, all the bruising battles that uh, Serena's out of the draw will have to uh, to sustain. So I'm picking Radwanska for the French Open final this year. Uh, n- nice pick. And, you know, let's not forget, Aga Radwanska was uh... – was one set away. Uh, she took Serena to three at Wimbledon a few years ago, mm-hmm. and had Aga won that match, she would have been the number one player in the world, came very, very right. close, and uh, right. a storming comeback against Serena after being dominated in the first set. So uh, I like your pick. I, I am, um, I'm going to go with Serena Williams uh, to, to win that, I guess, with everybody. I just uh, – I, I think she's uh, very, very determined to get that uh, done. But, um, yeah, I, I like your pick of Aga, and I agree uh, that, she, that she's overdue. And before we get your pick for the, uh, for the men's uh, championship, Jan, uh, I, I want to ask you a little bit, uh, you know, somebody that a lot of people are, are talking about um, who, who's had a pretty good clay court season, uh, Grigor Dimitrov, however, loses in three sets, uh, straight sets today to uh, – Ivo Karlovic, who's made his way all the way back up to number 37 in the world, had some some health issues and some surgeries, and um, you know all credit to Ivo. But uh, 
your thoughts on maybe what uh, didn't happen for Dimitrov today, and then uh, let's let's get a winner for you on the men's side. You know, it's funny. Um, I watched Grigor play a, um, I think it's last week, where he played a, a guy from uh, either the Ukraine or, you know, a qualifier, someone who gave him a really, really hard time. He won, I think, 7-5 or 7-6 in the third you know, really had to fight very hard to uh, to win that match. And, you know, that really got me thinking whether he was ready for the big time at the French Open or whether he was already kind of, uh, you know, going down a little bit or getting fatigued. You know, he's obviously a brilliant player, and I think that he's going to win a grand slam at some point in the near future. Um, but, you know, Evo is hard to play. You know, if Evo is on with a big serve and you're not on yourself, he can clip you in no time. You know, he's also someone who's quite overwhelming that comes to the net anytime he gets the chance to. Um, if you're not on and, you know, again, the weather was very, very damp, so you're not able to move him around as much as you should to be able to beat him and be in a dominant phase. Um, if the serve is on and you can't move him around, it sort of evens out, you know, um, <laughs> the, the playing field for him and we all know that anytime the playing field is evened out it favors the the aggressive player and he's more aggressive than uh, Dimitrov in general so I wasn't so surprised by that loss to be honest with you I think uh, Rigor is a little tired right now and I think he's going to do him a lot of good as well to be able to take some time off and get ready for uh, Wimbledon yeah and uh, before we get your picks uh, for who's going to win the men I'm just Curious because uh, I agree with you. I, I see at least one uh, major uh, one by Grigor going forward. But what's your time frame? When do you think he might be able to uh, to achieve and accomplish that, uh, Jan? I give him two to three years. Um, I think that he's going to need. Uh, it's hard to beat Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, Murray, and Ferrer in the same tournament. I mean, these guys are really tough to play. You can beat one, but to beat one and the other back-to-back like Rarinka did, you need to have a year like Rarinka, you know, a tournament like Rarinka did at the Australian Open, where you just don't fire and everything you fire out of your racket stays in. Um, yeah. I think Grigor is still a little young mentally. Um, he still makes some pretty wild choices at important times. And that gets in the way, you know, to be able to... Uh, win a grand slam. I mean, you saw Murray took him forever to be able to actually gather his thoughts and keep his mental where he needs to be to be able to win a grand slam. And uh, I think Rigor has probably two to three years still of schooling, mental schooling and, um, you know, an experience acquired to be able to be fully complete, to have a shot. And he's going to need some of those players to age out as well. Yeah, I, I, he's got uh, great guidance and counsel in his camp with with Roger Rashid for sure. And um, you know, coming up at the at the tail end of our show, Jan, I'm going to ask you for your your pick, uh, the uh, the champion and the finalist for the men's tournament at Roland Garros this year. I think it's going to be a, a classic. It's going to be Nadal versus uh, Djokovic, and I think Djokovic is going to take it and reclaim the number one spot. I, I agree with you. Uh, that, that's uh, here. I'm, you know, almost fifty and a half to forty-nine and a half percent. Novak, he's knocked on the door. He's had some unfortunate circumstances, uh, you know, leading into Roland Garros with deaths in his family, deaths in his camp, if you will, and uh, the unfortunate, uh, you know, touching the net last year. But uh, 
Yeah, Novak uh, is right there, and uh, and and this is his, in my opinion, as well. So um, we want to thank you very much for for joining us uh, tonight, Jan, with uh, with uh, your sweet spotter information, as well as your coaching counsel, and obviously success on uh, uh, with the, with the school. And um, looking forward to having you uh, on the show as well going forward. And we'd like to remind our listeners. Uh, Tomorrow we've got uh, CEO of the USPTA, John Embry, at 1 o'clock Pacific, followed Thursday by Dr. Ann Smith, as well as Vic Braden and another edition of Passing Shots. And before we sign off, Jan, I want to know if you want to add anything else in closing. I just wanted to thank you guys for the opportunity to uh, share my thoughts. You are doing a fantastic job, so I'm very impressed with uh, you know, how knowledgeable you are about, you know, this entire tennis industry. Uh, it is quite a multidimensional industry, and you definitely have uh, a full understanding of uh, <laughs> what lies ahead and uh, in between the lines. So uh, very impressed with the show, and again, thank you for having me. We, we appreciate it. We really do, Jan. We look forward to having you on uh, once again as well. Thank, thank you. Thank you very much. Have a good one. Sure.